Welcome everybody to Learn With Lowell. Today we're joined with Selena, uh, the founder of SOVN. Uh, they're out in Netherlands. I'm not allowed to say where it is because no one wants visitors. And uh, <laughs> and we're going to get into SOV and, and uh, Bruxism and all these things that she's been working on for the last several years. But Selena, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lowell. Happy to be here. And it's called Sovin. Yeah. Uh, Sovin? Yeah, Sovin. The name is uh, Norwegian for sleep. Um, and yeah, we're a sleep wellness company. But we also, I also like the name soften because we address bruxism and I always think like, okay, you need to soften your jaw. So uh, like how you would say soften. Yeah. Mm. Although that I makes think more sense. we just would say it's soven is the proper way of saying it, but we just say mm. soft. So then uh, starting there for people who don't know, yeah. and I didn't know before, like a friend of ours uh, connected us and I was like, <laughs> what is this? And this is pretty cool. Uh, what is bruxism? Yeah, so bruxism is actually an umbrella term uh, to describe teeth grinding, jaw clenching, bracing, and thrusting. So it's it's actually a normal thing that most of us do, where you tighten your muscle or you grind your teeth. Um, I, yeah, so actually, if you do a sleep study with just the general population, you'll find... At any point in this conversation, if you find value in it, please subscribe it is hugely beneficial and it tells google and everyone out there that this is content worth watching thank you for everyone thus far who has commented like subscribed and told their friends a good 60 percent of people do this rhythmic masticatory muscular movement where they basically their jaw muscles is doing something in their sleep it's absolutely normal but for some people it turns into an issue because they either wear down their tooth really bad or they wake up with this really sore jaw, headaches, pains, migraines. Some people develop tinnitus because of that. Um, and I think when it becomes this health issue, that's when, um, yeah, you need to address that. But that's what bruxism is. How severe is it? Like how much? Yeah, what, what is it actually like to have bruxism? To have the grinding down? Yeah, well, I can speak from... I think for everyone is sort of different. Like for me, um, I started grinding my teeth when I was five. Obviously, at, when I was five, I didn't know this. But my brother and sister would say like, oh, yeah, you're grinding your teeth again last night. I had an ex who was convinced that my house was haunted because he would hear this strange noise coming from my side of the bed. And he didn't know it was because of my teeth grinding. Um, and he just thought it was some ghost. <laughs> but for me, basically, my, my teeth get really ground down. Um, I had a lot of uh, gum issues as a result because of the impact that it puts on your teeth every night. And um, yeah, I've, I've already had lost a molar, uh, get a new implant, and that implant had broken twice, uh, even though I've regularly worn my mouth guards. So the force that is impacted on your tooth can be up to 10 times greater than when you're chewing. So I'll let you think about that. So that's a lot of force, right? And that could be reflected in wearing down of the teeth or the jaw muscles. Um, I think for some people, that means they wake up with really, really sore jaw, just unbearable pain, really, really stiff neck. Um, and yeah, if you wake up already feeling shitty like that, that really impacts the rest of your day. 
Yeah, it's, uh, I, I was thinking um, when I was reading about it and hearing from you is that the it sounds extremely painful. So uh, a part of my head is like, okay, so we know something exists. Like, how would you know if you had it? It's like the pain would, would let you know. Like if you're like anywhere near it, like the pain lets you know. It yeah. does it. Does it ever like start small? Like you start like when you're like at some point in your life. I don't know if, if it can happen randomly, but um, does it ever like start small? Like you start slowly grinding, and then for some reason it starts getting worse over time. So like you have to be a little bit more aware, like sensitive to this idea that maybe you have bruxism and it'll get worse. Yeah. So you should be mindful of it. Or is it just like, Absolutely. come on, and it's consistent. Absolutely. Well, I think one, it does come and goes because it's, it's quite a complex behavior that's affected by a lot of things. Um, I mean, we always say it originates in a central nervous system. So, you know, uh, like if you get a lot of, if your sleep, it's not great because you drink caffeine too late in the night and you have a lot of microarousal or sleep disruptions throughout the night. You tend to get a lot of these uh, grinding, clenching behavior as well. Um, certain SSRIs have been known to increase the likelihood of people doing this. Um, so there are a lot of things that can influence that. And it is funny if you look at um, who tends to grind more it's people between the age of 25 to 45 so we tend to correlate this with, with when things are the most stressful in your life this is when you start having kids but also a caregiver for your elderly parents you also have work so a lot of things happening um although kids also tend to do it a lot as well this is the funny thing i think a lot of parents notice um, and then it tends to disappear when people turn around like 50 or so. Um, but yeah, I hope that answers the question. And also yeah, the other thing I want to mention is, um, research has shown that it is a habit in a way, in the sense that the more you do it, the more your brain actually forms connection that makes it easier for you to do it. And therefore the more you do it. Um, so at certain point, it is good for you to become more aware that say like you notice you tend to tense your jaw muscles during the day when you're concentrating behind the computer, figure out how you can be more aware of that and relax your jaw and try to do less of that because it does carries over to your sleep. Yeah. And I was under the impression that when we're sleeping, we're like kind of in some form of like sleep paralysis. So is that I guess A, is that not the case? And then B, it's like a part of bruxism, like overcoming sleep paralysis and still moving your jaw in that way. Um, I have not seen any research that connects it to sleep paralysis. Um, what we know is that these tends to happen during that moment. It, we call it during microarousals. So that's when your sleep is sort of getting disrupted it's always gets preceded by an increase in your sympathetic nervous system. So like your heart rate starts going up, your breathing rate starts going up, and then you have this microarousals moment. And then the person starts expressing it through clenching their jaw, grinding their teeth. And what's interesting is this behavior of, um, you know, grinding your teeth or clenching your teeth seems to trigger these uh, trigeminal nervous system that does have an effect of lowering your heart rate so mm. some research have tried to link it or hypothesize that maybe this is actually simply a reflex system to bring your heart rate down and sort of stabilize your sleep but unfortunately in some people 
this reflex sort of continues even though it's already past its expiry date when it's no longer useful yeah what's the point of a micro arousal is it just like your heart gets elevated or something like why does the body do that do you know well that the body does that it's just that sometimes there's environmental things that happen that causes a micro arousal it could be like a simple pin drop you know in the bedroom or there's uh, because all your sensory system are actually still on while you're asleep right we're we're good evolutionarily speaking that way that we're always calibrating and sensing for danger so it could be that you know you have a newborn baby and you hear a little noise and that would cause a micro arousal um or it this also happens if you have a super uh what do you call it stressful or high intensity workout right before sleep you tend to have those micro arousals as well basically when yeah when you have these uh, sleep disruptions happening um for me uh i found this as i could start tracking the sleep with with our device mm-hmm. i found out that after watching really gory horror movies so like saw or <laughs> something like that i my grinding tends to pick up or like increase significantly because I have a lot of micro arousals during those nights. I never connected it until I started tracking my data, but to a lot of people, they said, yeah, of course it makes sense. You know, you're sort of like still pretty agitated and pretty amped up after that kind of movies. So it makes sense why you would have these sleep disruptions. Yeah. And then uh, on, on your website, you say uh, the Sobbing is not a cure. We don't believe teeth grinding and clenching is a disorder that requires a cure either. So it's more just yeah. like something to manage it with your technology. Like that's how you say about it. Yeah, I think for the longest time, people just think like teeth grinding. That sounds so weird. It's something that you absolutely need to eliminate, right? Because the idea of yeah, you grinding your teeth at night randomly is just so un- unsettling. Uh, but then if if you know that actually this is something that a lot of people do normal people do uh throughout their life then you start thinking about it differently and saying hey this is actually a behavior not something that you need to eliminate completely it's just something to be managed um and so that's how we've always seen kind of like the core of of our product is like we're not here to completely eliminate bruxism because we don't believe it needs to be eliminated it's more of understanding when do you grind your teeth what are what is causing you to increase or decrease your bruxism like i already mentioned things um related to your sleep hygiene so like do you watch um and work on a computer right up until your bedtime do you doom scroll you know in in bed <laughs> before going to bed like all of these things affect your sleep quality how fragmented your sleep are and if your sleep are fragmented and disrupted it will also influence how much grinding and clenching you do at night and then um you know with the app we want people to be able to track things that they eat and consume as well so it could be your medications it could be your caffeine consumptions it could be alcohol because these are things that have been demonstrated to also affect your sleep and also affect your bruxism um of course we have a feature where you know we provide a soothing vibration sound stimulation to get people back to sleep 
after this microarousal and try to minimize the duration of their grinding and clenching behavior. But I would say that is just one feature of all the holistic thing that we provide in the product. Yeah. What? Uh, so when there is damage, like you mentioned, your molar, is, is it just like normal, just go see a dentist and they fix it, that type of thing? And then once you're aware of it on that level, start using a device like what you're making to kind of counteract it. Well, the thing about, okay, you go like for me, you know, they, I destroyed my molar. I had to go get a new implant and within two weeks, basically the implant came off because of the grinding forces. So even if after you get your teeth fixed, your behavior is still there. So mm -hmm. you kind of still need to manage and make sure um, that is taken care of. I think the, the mouth guard <coughs> does help for some people. So if you look at the research, if you have, if your grinding and clenching is related to sleep apnea, which sometimes it is, then having a mouth guard that helps with your sleep apnea. So this is the one that like moves your jaw forward and opens up your airway can resolve it. And then for other people whose grinding and clenching is not related to sleep apnea, um, the mouth guard could help you be more aware of your behavior. And as a result, it reduces it. But I think for 40, 50% of people, the mouth guard doesn't really do anything to the behavior other than simply covering your teeth and yeah, protecting it that way. Um, so what we are trying to address is sort of like this, we're, yeah, we're just basically trying to provide alternative solution and a complementary solution to what's already out there and get people to understand that this is more than simply uh, something that you do during the night. There's a lot of things that you do during the day that you could also do to improve uh, your or address your grinding and your clenching. Yeah. What are so? What's the population size of people that are specifically like if you from like a business standpoint? How yeah. big is the a target market for what you want like for your technology? I kind of want to let you guess first. I'm always curious. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so there's 8 billion people on the planet. Like, like how 50 million people do you think do this? Probably like 1%. Uh, like, a, so like the whole teeth grinding, probably like a third, but to the level of like molar explosion, I would say like 1%, 0.1%. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's more in the range of like 1% if you take that. So 10% of people have sleep bruxism, around 20% people have daytime bruxism. So these are people who actually do it during the day. And then of those 40% are what we call chronic. So they do it on a regular basis. And around 15% are what develop complications um, or have some sort of health issues as a result of that. So we calculated that in US and Europe alone. So the chronic ones is about 9 million people. Um, and then, but even the ones who doesn't develop like the complex, uh, cases where they have like significant pain or they're like, they lost the molar and spend thousands of euros every year trying to fix it. Um, people are already buying stuff in order to fix this because they want, you know, they, they, they get told by their dentist, you need to get a mouth guard. And what's funny is for some of these people, they actually might not need to wear a mouth guard at all. It might just be like a one-time thing that they did or not do. 
So one of the things that we also want to address with the devices, get people to understand, are you actually still grinding and clenching? Because if not, you actually don't need to have this strange uh, thing in your mouth to sleep and you can just sleep naturally, you know? Um, yeah. So <coughs> we, even though we start from bruxism, our overall goal is to also address just the broader sleep health, because I think there's a lot of interesting thing uh, that we could uh, address with, with our technology. Yeah. You see it being able to be kind of like a heart monitor. So like there are times when um, if you have like a heart problem or whatever, they'll like send, like hook you up. And then for like two weeks, they monitor your stuff to see like to the, to the severity of what's going on or if it's res resolved. And so someone could uh, put your earphones in or, or what have you, and then uh, detect and monitor it over the course of like two weeks to see, is this like, you see a dentist and they say, Hey, we, how, how severe is this? So they give this to you for two weeks. It's like, Oh, this is a one-time event or, or more that we can like, make the plan accordingly from there do you see that being an element of what you're what you're building yeah i think that's one of the elements for sure because right now the way that dentists will tell you whether you grind your teeth or not is they basically look at tooth wear and what we've known from all the research is tooth wear is not really a good indicator because this this tooth wear could have happened you know a year ago two years ago and actually you're no longer grinding now so for a very, very long time, we've always been wanting a an objective measurement system that will let the dentist and the person knows how much are they grinding really every night. But all the tools that's been out there so far are cumbersome. It's it's not very customer friendly. So people are quite hesitant to use it. And it's also super expensive and then not very accurate. So we're trying to change that. Um, yeah, and then I think what's been really interesting and this is a little bit new is we've started testing our prototypes and we're finding out that we're also picking up you know people's breathing rate and people's heart rate and people's and with these two indicators we can see um their sleep stage that they're in when micro arousals are happening uh is is this grinding and clenching behavior preceded or followed by some sort of an apnea breathing events so what we hope to provide is not just a yes, no, but a more nuanced view of actually, this is when you're doing it during this sleep stage. And it tends to happen right after an apnea episode, in which case, hey, you probably have some, you know, conversations to have with your doctor about sleep apnea. And it's just a, it's like a, a device that you stick in your ears, right? And they can, I could, I could get the jaw because like, you know, you pop your ears if you're on an airplane. How does it detect everything else that you just mentioned, like breathing rate and stuff? Yeah. Well, <laughs> to be very honest, like the, the breathing rate and the heart rate was like a complete serendipitous um, observation. It was kind of like, holy shit, we didn't know that we were, we could detect all of this. Uh, so it's an earbud similar to what you would wear. Uh, during the day, it actually can play music and it has a speaker and everything. The only difference is that it's way tinier than what you've seen in the market so far. It's probably 30 to 50% smaller than an AirPods. It doesn't have an antenna that's sticking out, you know, something really, that's really small and flush so you can just sleep on it. Um, and how it detects uh, breathing and, and heart rate is that when you, when you breathe, um, there is a jaw movement that happens, especially when you're sleeping. And when your breathing rate 
gets harder when respiratory effort increases, especially because you have like apnea or some sort of breathing obstructions, then the jaw moves even bigger. So you can see that in terms of the heart rate, this was totally unexpected, but it makes sense. Um, there is two arteries that's going right in front of your uh, ear. Um, and because of where the sensor is located, it could pick that up there. But the heart rate part, it's novel how we're picking it up, but people have been trying to pick up heart rate with just regular PPG sensors uh, for a very long time using earbuds. And I think there's a lot of research out there uh, as well. The, the novel thing is how we're doing it. Uh, we're not using PPG. So it is quite novel in that way. What's PPG? Uh, PPG is, I'm going to say it the wrong way, platis photo. Basically, you shine a light um, oh. and it's reflected back. And that's how you're able to see uh, the blood flow. Hmm. So you know how oh, like on watches and stuff. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. So those are PPG technology where it's it's technically optical, optical sensor. Oh, that's interesting. I don't know. That's how they worked. The So what is the... What is like, I guess, like the business, like the initial business model that you intend to have? Is it so I, I can imagine so many different ways of using your technology and like getting it out to people. I could see mm -hmm. like one element of it kind of being like those like DNA tests you can do for like a hundred bucks. Like you buy this thing, you, you check it out for like two weeks. To, do you need it? And then if not, you send it back or something. I don't know, you get it cleaned or whatever. Uh, but um, so I can see something like that. I, I basically I could see so many different ways for you to make money and get this to yeah. people. So I'm just kind of curious. What is the business model for this type of thing? Yeah, so we want to get started with really people who need this. Um, so the chronic grinders we're talking about that has issues with it. And so the business model is we go direct to customers where they, where they purchase it. Uh, they get the hardware and the app and there's tons of features on the app for them to address their grinding and clenching behavior, look at their data, surfacing what it is that they do during the day that affects their bruxism at night. Um, and then the way we started with that, because we really want to build kind of like a loyal following of people who will help us innovate with a product. Because I know this sounds going to not sounds really nice, but of course we want to make money. We want to be successful as startups, but my one of my personal missions is also to change the way bruxism is addressed because it's just long overdue. We, we know for a very, very long time that this is a behavior that has nothing to do with your bite, your teeth, uh, or how your jaw is constructed. And yet people are still being offered all sorts of solutions that cost a ton of monies to, you know, change their orthodontics, change their jaw, jaw reconstructive surgery, and a lot of things that really should not be done. You know, I think there's a gentler, more holistic, better way of addressing it. So we believe that, hey, let's really focus on sort of like bruxism, helping people who really have a lot of issues and who are currently struggling, having tried, you know, Botox and um, jaw surgery or mouth guards, seven different kinds of mouth guards and not getting any effect from it. Let's help them. And as we, as we start from those loyal followers and then let's start grow to like the less chronic version. And then we can start addressing like what you were saying before, where people who have a little bit of an issue, they can check out this device for, you know, two weeks and see how bad it is. Um, and maybe they will decide to keep the device because 
we also have features to simply improve your sleep, right? Um, sleep tracking and sleep improvement with audio stimulation. That's in the pipeline as well. So we're going to start with bruxism, but we have a lot of exciting things in store to address other sorts of uh, sleep health issues. So uh, you have the device, the hardware element of it. You have an app, which uh, it sounds like from like a tech stack standpoint, this doesn't have to be like that complicated to get like that MVP up. I mean, the hardware side of it, that's that's complicated. Like that's like a, its own bag of worms. But like yeah. from a software connecting the data and like rendering it to people, it sounds like yeah. it'd be very straightforward. Yeah. Um, the personalized medicine element of it, like taking the data and then knowing the granularity of it, it sounds like there would be like some, like some type of like machine learning or statistical element that has to be there for that to be useful. Is mm -hmm. that... Um, it's per, it, it, I guess is that like a good guess? Because uh, I, I, I imagine at some level you're not you don't want to answer because <laughs> then I'm like giving away your, your sauce. No, we're super proud about that component. But everything that you're saying is absolutely true. And I'm sort of every day I go into work and I say, Selena, why did you start with the most hardest complex thing that you can think of as your first startup? Because you're absolutely right. It has a hardware component. It has a software which is AI machine learning component, and it's also an app. And all three needs to work together and hum really, really well. Um, <laughs> the great thing is we do have a development partner who is an expert at making earbuds. So we've been working with them for the last couple of months to integrate our sensor into their platform. So the hardware platform, we have a really competent partner, and that's sort of like whew, a big relief for, for us. Uh, we're focusing right now really on the algorithm side of things. So you actually move your jaw quite a bit during the night. So we need to be able to differentiate at an individual level. When is it really grinding, clenching? And when is it someone's just yawning or someone's just opening their mouth? And then on the app side, that's where a lot of the AI machine learning personalization is also happening where customer inputted data is going to be correlated to their bruxism data and at the customer level then they can see i think we're going to start off really simple simply surfacing what you know certain tags that they have how does that correlate to their bruxism frequency and duration um, is consuming alcohol uh, actually something that triggers their bruxism or maybe it's something else so we're going to start at that but yeah, fingers crossed, it's gonna, you know, the more, um, the more, not the more features, but as we get more data from customers who voluntarily share this with us, um, we can make it better for everyone. Yeah. Is there an element of the machine learning where if you, if the device thinks it's detected a bruxism as an event, but it turns out not to be an event, that the user can some like input that data so you can then refine the the algorithm further or like so is there like user feedback on that level well there is a reinforcement learning that happens in that because you know um bruxism is totally subconscious so it's not as if i will know what is a real episode and what is not a real episode either so like the user won't be able to uh, provide that level of feedback but what they could provide is how do they end up feeling the next day is is your is their mm -hmm. job or jaw tension increasing or decreasing how is their sleep is there is their sleep quality up or down so that would give a, a score you know for data reinforcement learning to say oh it seems like we need to calibrate the detection this way or a different way 
um, where we're using it more as more on like the uh, the biofeedback itself or like the feedback that it's providing because there's a couple of different feedback we could provide the user. And I think it's going to vary from person to person, which one is going to be the most quote unquote effective in reducing the duration. So having their feedback in terms of, oh yeah, you know, last night I get, you know, um, I have a great sleep and my jaw tension is less. That's positive. Let's keep, keep on following that, that, um, that path. And if the feedback from the customer is like, nope, that's not, then the machine, the machine learning, the algorithm needs to pick a different path. Yeah. Well, I, I imagine there's like, there's maybe like a dozen or more potential bruxism events in a night. Like, it's not like you do it once or twice or three times, like it'll happen a bunch of times. Like that's what I'm imagining so far from what I'm hearing. Yeah. And so there's like a threshold, there's a threshold of sen like uh, of sensitivity that you need to meet for the device to implement and then do some type of thing. So then it can't be like, um, can't be like, uh, so ignorant of like everything else going around that it's like missing the lighter stuff. Cause like I imagine it all adds up, but then yeah. you can't be, um, I guess like the concern I'm trying to like wrap my mind around is if there are multiple events, like mm -hmm. the error rate and the significance of the error rate in the night, I get, I wonder to the extent that would matter. And then how would you refine it? If, um, you can't differentiate it because let's say there's like you can catch like one in three approximate events in a night and then the people are like oh that's like i'm like 30 percent better but then that like like the pass fail of like hey it's better but like how much better like the granularity of it, it's not that granular so like you'd be able to improve a little bit but it doesn't sound like you'd be able to like capture everything in like a like a really precision way but still like gonna improve of course like because you're grabbing like one in three or whatever potentially but it doesn't sound like you'd be able to like know like the error rate of each individual potential detection of, uh, of bruxism versus like maybe it's something else and you inter intervene unnecessarily versus um, uh, you didn't detect it and you didn't intervene and like maybe it was missed. Yeah, so for the detection algorithm itself, we're not just obviously doing it based on user feedback where yeah. we're referencing it to actual uh, quote unquote gold standard for bruxism detection. So that's how we initially built the mm. algorithm and we wouldn't let it to customer until we get you know greater than 90 95 percent accuracy in terms of detection and i think what's been really neat is as we start looking at the data it's quite clear when someone is um, having a bruxism episode versus when they're just yeah opening yawning their mouth or whatever okay there's uh, yeah there's a rhythmicity that's happening uh in in grinding and clenching even clenching we think of it as like it's very static. It's actually not static at all. As you bear down, there's micro movement that's happening and we are capturing that as well. So okay. from a perspective, we're, you know, we're not just depending on uh, reinforcement learning or customer mm -hmm. feedback to improve the algorithm. We're actually basing it off of a reference. Okay, um, sweet. Yeah, exactly. And what we care about is for people not to lose sleep because of our device. So we set the bar really, really high in terms of when we will intervene. Uh, it's only when we're absolutely sure, yes, this is an episode when the feedback is going to be provided. Because if you miss like an episode or two, just for reference, people tend, you know, like average or average user they have anywhere from like 15 to 60 episodes per night. Um, so that's 
you know, if you miss one or two episodes, that's not the end of the world. But mm-hmm. we absolutely do not want is providing this uh, stim- stimulation when nothing is actually happening. Yeah. And yeah. what does the is the the stimulation like a does it counteract bruxism? Like the the body sees that or feels that, and then it's like, oh, I need to stop because like for some like mechanical reason, or is it yeah. like the Pavlovian thing? Like how does that? How does the 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 sensing like the earbud vibration or what have you result yeah. in um, reduction in bruxism? So it's actually simpler than that, and I need mm-hmm. to come like a better marketing term or or term for it but it's like the it's a squirrel effect i'd like to call it basically the same part of your brain that's doing the grinding and clenching is the same one that's processing sensory data from the environment so a lot of studies have been done that when you provide a sensory stimulus when someone is grinding or clenching you have the brain is forced to switch to paying attention to whatever the sensory stimulus is. And as a result, it stops the grinding and clenching. And the person doesn't necessarily quote unquote wake up because when these grinding and clenching episodes happen, they're already in this micro arousal stage anyway. So they're already in kind of like that really, really light sleep. Um, And what we're doing is we're shortening the episode and then they just go back to their normal sleep routine. And what's, uh, what I found really fascinating when we did our very, very first proof of concept, you know, every day we would call the participant and basically say, okay, tell us how many times do you think you got, you know, buzzed last night? And they would say, oh yeah, I think I felt it like once or twice. And then when we look at the device log, there were like 60 episodes that were, uh, that were detected and where they were given intervention. Um, so and I think this has been true, not just in our research, but also in previous research. And it's true for, I think you probably know, like there are some startups there that's also addressing snoring and apnea this way. So this is sort of like a known phenomenon that in light sleep, you could deliver stimulation without completely waking people up and change what they were doing. Yeah, that's interesting. So, uh, it makes you think that like, um, there might be an application to all these other Microarousal situations where, like, if you're in a safe environment and you know no one's gonna like break in and attack you, you like imp- like implement this thing, and so yeah. it's like, oh, you just have like cars drive by randomly at night, or like a train makes a noise, and so yeah. then um, when you're you start to have a microarousal, maybe like the thing could like vibrate, like, no, so don't pay attention to that, and then you go back to sleep, so you could potentially have like a deeper sleep. Yeah, I think that's um, talking about deeper sleep. I mean, there's a whole body of research out there where they found if you give a specific type of sound stimulus that is matched to like your um i'm gonna misquote this but basically if you give a certain specific type of sound stimulation with certain types of frequency uh you can actually elongate how much time people spend in their Mm. uh, slow wave sleep in their deep sleep so that's kind of like interesting and i think that's definitely an area that deserves a lot of research and an area that we're also looking at because if we know the sleep stage, we know the breathing rate, and we can give this, you know, a million types of different sound stimulation from <laughs> if you can even pre-record, you know, your name being called very, very nicely and soothingly by your mom. I don't know, maybe that will provide some sort of effect. I'm just joking. Um, but you know, there's a lot of things definitely that's interesting for people who are into sleep biohacking. Yeah. 
that's a good i just imagine what would it be like if if someone if my mom whispered my name in the middle of the night i i, I would i'd go from like zero to how the heck did you get into this <laughs> this house <laughs> it's like what's happening like because you would have to like kool-aid man a lot of doors to get to where i'd be sleeping and so it's like for her to want to do that like something bad must have been happening so like i, I imagine that's how my brain would take it but yeah um the yeah i i, I have like really sensitive hearing so I, I can like hear everything i've like i can hear most things within like 20 feet of me no matter what's happening i just like i can hear it really well uh yeah. like one time i was uh like my room when i was growing up was near a road as most rooms are but there was a person like i kept hearing like this yelling and I didn't know what it was. And so I, I came out of my room because I thought someone was screwing with me. Like just like very faint yelling. Like very faint. Like I thought like maybe it was a ghost or something. I was like freaking out. But uh I was like someone's screwing with me, as like, you know, people do to kids. And then I wasn't hearing anything. So I then opened the door, walked out closer to the road. And then the other side of the road where there's like a field, there's a person and there like there was a car trying to run over a person. The person was yelling for help. But anyway, so like I, I hear a lot of things. Like like uh so I can detect that stuff and we like call the cops, got them help. But um maybe so like this this idea yeah so this idea that like something could help me uh 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 not be aroused by the, all the things that i i hear would be nice because then i could have a deeper sleep and then a happier life yeah yeah absolutely uh and i think also people uh think that you need to be quote unquote awake for you to hear things actually if you just look at your eeg while you're asleep and then someone gives some stimulation um, you can see that the brain processes it, but you're not necessarily like awake. So there are some sub uh, level of processing in terms of sound, yeah, sound processing that happens uh, even when you're not awake, when you're asleep. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know why what you just said reminded me of this really funny story. So you mentioned uh, earlier that uh, when uh, when you watch horror films, yeah. that uh, that uh like you'd have more bruxism and i was just thinking of uh because now i'm like thinking like you know childhood things but I, like one time we watched a horror film of like the texas chainsaw massacre and uh my dad like went outside at night and like revved up the chainsaw <laughs> and so i was just wondering like how many people had bruxism events that <laughs> because of it a lot <laughs> yeah i thought it was funny but uh you know other people didn't have a sense of humor for it but uh yeah, so I mentioned the induced stress of that probably wasn't very good for those people. Um, but yeah, so then uh, what would what would be the would this be something like the device? Would it be um, like covered under a medical plan or is this like something that people would expect to pay out of pocket kind of like like a, an iPhone or something? I would love for this to be eventually covered by medical plan, but I also know that it's a super long road because, um, well, even, you know, first of all, dental care, I think in a lot of geographies is not part of the healthcare plan. Mm -hmm. um, and I think bruxism overall is like, people don't think of bruxism as a severe condition uh, and a known condition, even though a lot of people struggle with it, of a lot of people that I think we both personally know have it. So our goal is to start by pricing it at the level that people can buy it out of pocket and in the meantime we're gonna get the you know the clinical evidence to show that it works we're working with different medical centers and clinicians and key opinion leaders to really validate the technology and over time i hope we can build a body of evidence to show yes 
or this condition, this actually helps and it's better than the alternative, more cost effective than what's available out there and therefore it should be covered under insurance plan. So that's the holy grail, that's the goal, uh, but we also understand there's a lot of proving that needs to be done before we get there. Yeah, so it's like a huge educational problem that um, you have to go to like a lot of conferences and talk to a lot of uh, dentists, but the nice thing there is that um, I think there'd be a big use for it. Even if it wasn't meant, uh, like insured for the dentist to know about it and then see this thing and then want to implement it to help people, I think that'd be interesting. Because dentists are always about that upsell. Last time I was in a dentist, I had like uh, the back of my teeth guard thing, like re-glued because it popped off. And uh, the whole time they're just upselling me different things. Like, you know, we can make you a whole mouth mouth uh, thing. You want to get your teeth scanned while you're here? So only like 15, we'll quote you 15 extra dollars to do this. And it's like, okay. It's just like, I felt like I was in a chop shop. So like, I feel uh, for dentists out there, I'm just, you know, I'm like 50% giving you a hard time, 50% just telling you something that happened. But the, it seems like they would be open to like this type of upsell where they have this device, they can put it in there and then potentially that, that gets them more revenue. Even if they do have to like, um, it isn't insured. I think there's opportunity there and there's also opportunity to provide more uh, information to dentists about what bruxism is. I think a lot of them are still under the old view that, you know, it has something to do with your teeth or like your bite is off and when it's actually really a central nervous system issue. And I think if, if they can get on board with that idea that, hey, this is not just a teeth issue, but also a sleep and a central nervous system I wouldn't call it issue, but like, you know, it has something to do with how you sleep and your central nervous system. And there's this other solution that can help them. And by the way, um, yeah, it would give you more credibility in front of your patient. Then, yeah, I think I would like them to get on board with it for sure. Yeah. But the initial thing is going to be direct to consumer, right? So then well, how do you expect to get consumers to know about you and then yeah. want to buy it? And then how much will they have to pay? Yeah. So we, <laughs> I find it so interesting that the first thing people do apparently once that their dentists say, you seem like you grind your teeth, here's a mouth guard. People actually go home and Google what is bruxism, what is teeth grinding, what is mouth guard, how much does a mouth guard cost? So people are already looking for solutions out there. Um, and we've been able to capture customers using simply like content marketing, SEO, Google ads, social media ads, um, and a lot of word of mouth. <laughs> you wouldn't believe like every time we go to a conference or just talking to someone afterwards, we get approached by people who said, oh yeah, my boyfriend does it. My girlfriend does it. Uh, or my best friend does it, or like I do it myself, I absolutely want your product. Uh, so we've been really successful with those channels. Um, so initially, price wise, we're going to start at 300. And I really hope that is sort of like we're barely making money with that. Um, and we hope to, yeah, eventually get it covered by insurance or make it more affordable or offer some sort of subscription plan because what i would love is for people for this to be affordable and for people to be able to use it and benefit from it like i'm i don't i get coached all the time 
by you know startup mentors who say ah you got to price it really really high and because you know you can never get your price up you can only get your price down but at the same time i'm like okay i i understand the economic theory behind it but i also believe in having people try your product use your product um provide feedback and continue iterating and evolving that way um and so yeah we what the pricing that we offer is like the uh what do you call it our best effort in making this affordable which i know might be high for some people but we're definitely going to try to yeah have as many people be able to afford this and use this and benefit from it yeah i i just pulled up google trends to see how often people look up bruxism to see uh and it's like like 75 to 100 people a day do it in the u.s alone and apparently people out in wyoming you guys need help (laughs) (laughs) well wyoming needs help uh, look up teeth grinding or clenching yeah not bruxism grinding grinding i mean this is like exciting content right now (laughs) i just wanted to like throw it out there uh no, teeth grinding's actually teeth grinding's less. It's uh, the average for teeth grinding is like uh like twenty percent less. Oh, for, for the United States. But okay. people in Wyoming, once again, y- y- y'all <laughs> need help. So whatever's happening out in in Wyoming to make you you guys so stressful. Maybe the cows. I don't know what's happening there. I've never been to Wyoming. Um, I know it's near like kind of the Yellowstone region, but um, yeah, maybe that's a region to ch- to check out. But for <laughs> for. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i was just curious but uh uh is there how hard is it as a business to do like a layaway financing option for people so that they can pay it over a period of time like is there any like infrastructural like bank things that you have to do or any regulation stuff that you have to do is to allow people you know to you know pay like like 15 20 each month and i don't know if you have like an interest rate or whatever on top of that because it's depreciating but like how hard would it be to do something like that i've always been wondering about that type of model i don't know how it's actually done when it comes to like sausage ma- being made it's um it's not hard per se uh, because there are services that allows you to do that right like i think people know klarna and then there's a few other ones that allows you to break up payments like do a layaway payment plan i think from our side there's also like the capital um yeah there's some as a startup obviously it's already hard but providing a layaway payment plan means like our forecasting needs to be like solid our return rate needs to be virtually zero because otherwise that adds up in terms of how much um inventory we need to have um to get yeah to service all the customers so from a startup perspective that's the hard part is the inventory part um in terms of like the logistics or the payment logistics of get people to do that there's fortunately some providers that allows yeah allows us to be able to offer something like that that's interesting the and I, I was just i was looking at other, thing, other things other thing uh the bruxism and uh like gum shield type stuff is up three thousand percent over the last 30 days so like this is like people get more stressed and apparently brazil is is the most stressed in the world um <laughs> <laughs> so interesting so like it's uh bruxism is a big thing in brazil it's a big thing in japan south korea um we get requests a lot from distributors in these countries saying like hey is your product available because we would love to supply it over there um i don't know why um 
but there are yeah. there have been research that shows it is quite high in the East Asian population in terms of bruxism rate. So quite yeah. interesting. Is, is there any um, hypothesis or whatever that's like a cultural or like genetic thing? I mean, most humans are like genetically similar. We're not actually that like dissimilar as a population. But is there yeah. any, uh, I guess, not excuse, but like reason for it? Like that anyone has any hypothesis for? There, there was a nature paper recently that shows um, the genetic component of bruxism and how it relates to serotonin and, um, yeah, it, is it the serotonin uptake? Something to do with the serotonin um, inhibitor. So there sort of is a genetic component to it, but then again, I am not a genetic expert and i can't really comment to like okay what yeah. is that but then yeah. also anecdotally i think people often tells us oh yeah you know i i grind my teeth and my mom also does it or like my brother also does it so i yeah. i do think that there is a genetic component but it's not like there is a bruxism gene i think it's more of go, going back again to like the sympathetic parasympathetic nervous system um and how that gene component affects those balance yeah there's a there's in in europe a hemophilia for the royals came from queen victoria the the english queen who basically like world war one was basically all of her siblings like i mean all of her kids like fighting each other but you can trace it back to those people and so i wonder if there's like uh from a habit standpoint uh um like one like great 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 grandmother who like really grounded her teeth (laughs) <laughs> like like slowly descended it <laughs> on the rest of it uh, uh of the east that'd be kind of funny the the teeth like the teeth grinding equivalent of hemophilia uh i mean I, the, what's funny also is if you talk to expert you know one of the, the other reason why we don't believe in eliminating bruxism is because there is a positive effect effect of bruxism so like for those people who have um who grinds or clench their teeth as a result or connected to their sleep apnea this grinding clenching movement actually opens up the airway. Um, so, you know, there is a positive effect of grinding and clenching. It's just that, like what we were talking about before, it seems like in some people, they keep doing it after it's useful for them. So, yeah, evolutionarily, maybe it there is a reason why it sticks around in our gene pool, right? Mm-hmm. There, There is actually a benefit to it. Yeah. And then uh, I... You guys have a subreddit. There's like, you know, a, a lot of very passionate people there actually. And you didn't name A and whatnot. But one thing that I saw routinely people asking about was like beta testers, beta testers, how do we get in on this? And uh people were raising a concern that was being pushed back to December. And um they did not know. And so I did not know. And I could not Google what happened. But I think there was like a product thing that happened. What yeah. was, so like what was the push and like what what um better thing is gonna come from the delay? For people yeah. who wanted to be beta testers. Yeah. And to everyone who's listening and all our passionate followers, my apologies, my deepest apologies that, you know, I think our communication could have been better in terms of why there is this delay. <coughs> I think one thing is we really underestimated how difficult it is to build a brand new algorithm on a sensor that is literally first in the world um just in terms of you know building the tool so that we can look at our data 
label it, annotate it, and then build an algorithm on top of that, I think we have so severely underestimated how much resources is needed on that front. Um, but we're getting all of that figured out. And yeah, so that's that's all. And then the second part is, of course, on the hardware issue. Before last year, we had a, um, a back order issue with the sensor, the main sensor that we're using. Um, where there was like, a, I, I kid you not, it was like a 16 month um, delay or like supply time on, on the sensor. And so we're like, we don't have 16 months. So we had to pick a different sensor, but that also means we have to test it, validate it, integrate it, which was not built into our plan. And then the last thing was, we, I think I mentioned earlier, we have a development production partner now who's really an expert in making things small, making Bluetooth products, making hearable products. And this partnership was something that happened so serendipitously, but also so positive for us because now we finally are able to, you know, um, develop this vision that we've always had from the beginning, which is this very small, elegant earbuds that is completely wireless. So that's what people are gonna be getting in December. Before this delay, we were we were still having one that has a neck loop behind. And I dare to say it was a little bit janky, but we really wanna get prototype out there for people to test it. But with this new partner, we could leapfrog the whole development process and get the wireless version um in yeah in december which i think i'm super happy about it i think people should be very happy about it and with this prototype as soon as people say yeah this works this great maybe people have a little bit of feedback here and there but once that's done you know we can go into full scale production really really quickly with this partner so that's what's been happening on the back end um and it's funny I've been a medical device developer for 10 plus years now. And each time I, I'm reminded like, holy shit, when you're making like a brand new novel product, how much uncertainty and risk there are and things just always happens, both good and bad that you did not expect. And it's really hard to build that into the calendar. Um, anyway, but that's not an excuse. I just want to express like, how thankful we are to have like people who who believe in us and what we're doing. Um, like a lot of people, I really expect like 50% of people to say like, give me my money back. You can't push it to December. But actually people were like sending us email and say like, Hey, I know it's really hard to build a product like this. Thank you for continuing working on it. So that's what, you know, gives us the push to keep on going. Like, I love being an entrepreneur because um, I don't really have a boss. I am my own boss, but I actually consider the this initial customers that we have, people on the subreddit, people who are following us as my boss. Like that's who I'm working for, for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then um, when it comes to realizing that more resources need to be put into um, just on the software side of things, what, what was like the missing resources? So if I could take you back like to the beginning of the year or earlier, and I could say like, hey, this is what you need to do to like make sure this doesn't like on the software side of things. Hardware, it sounds like you were gonna you know have that problem, but what yeah. what were the missing resources? Like, what were the extra elements? Was it like a missing team member? Well, what what 
needed to, what more needed to be done on that level <clears throat> definitely missing team members like i wish we could have started like last year with uh you know full development team <laughs> with a senior developer with you know ai machine learning background that's fully staffed on the team and a couple of senior a uh, couple of developers under the person um, but unfortunately as a startup you just don't have the luxury of having that full development team. So we had to outsource some parts of that. But the risk with outsourcing sometimes is that, yeah, you you don't know what you don't know. Um, and so that was the issue. And overall, I would say like financing for a consumer product hardware in a market bruxism that people don't really know about has been quite challenging so i wish we had basically just raised a little bit more money last year so that we could have that third fourth team member um from the beginning yeah last year yeah is it um is there an argument to be made that you didn't need the hardware component? Like you could have like uh, taken the software interventions. Cause like, if you can emit sound from an earbud, I imagine you can emit other <coughs> vibrations. Like, I feel like that's probably like a, a, a thing. So then instead of needing like a special device, you could just take your, I like the intellectual technology and mm -hmm. like, like going on like an AirPod or something that people already have and have it have the same effect. Or did you really need to have the hardware for it? We tried people's hardware um, because we really try to minimize the work we need to do on the hardware. And basically there were two things that were um, that forced us in a way to develop our own hardware. And in a sense, it's a good thing that we ended up here. But so most of the earbuds that are out there are really not designed for sleep. Uh, they're too bulky. They're too uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And it sticks out. So it's really a hard sell, I would say, to ask someone to sleep with this, especially if they have to wear it, you know, um, every single night for the next three months or six months or whatever. So just from a form factor alone, it was it was impossible. And then the second part is how do you detect bruxism accurately, right? Because we were talking about that, like how we don't want to provide intervention when there's actually nothing happening. And so we look at all of the hardware that's out there and what sensor is already in those devices that we could use to detect bruxism. And basically none of them meet our strict criteria for, you know, really, really accurate so that we don't deliver uh, intervention needlessly. So because of that, we ended up, okay, fine. <laughs> we have to develop our own hardware. Um, but what's really neat about it is in the course of doing that, we found this area that's been unpatented, totally free and clear. We were able to basically develop our own sensor in that in that in that field, and it's um, yeah, it's amazing because with just this one sensor, we could detect jaw movement, breathing, and heart rate all in the same go. And using all of that, then we can look at sleep stage. So you know, it's a it's a blessing and a curse at the same time. The curse being like, yeah, we need to have our own hardware. The blessing is that, whoa, this is a whole area of innovation that we wouldn't have gotten into if we had just gone with someone else's hardware. Um, and of course, as a business, um, when you use someone else's hardware, you're also tied to them and you're kind of dependent on them. Anytime they do an upgrade or anytime they decided to launch a new product line, 
you got to like go along with them. Whereas if you have your own hardware, you have a little bit more control. Yeah. I'm I'm a big fan of vertical integration. I think that's one of the things that allows Apple to be very successful and have the margins that they do to the point where they have a bank as of just sitting on all that like a lion's hoard of cash. But at the same time, then you have like Microsoft models that are more like horizontally integrated and stuff. So I can see yeah. like the, the, the yin and yang of it, like the push and pull of the different methods that you could use. Um, yeah. The the uh, I, I know. Just to put it out there, <laughs> I love building things that I could see, touch, and feel, and mold. So, I mean, the team actually had a ton of fun as we're developing this. Um, and yeah, I, I love hardware. I know it's it's hard. Uh, and it's the iteration timeline is like super long, and investors hate hardware, <laughs> but I love it. <laughs> yeah. The uh, but yeah, tangible things are things that people don't get to do. I think a, one of the problems that a lot of people have, uh, which is nice at some level because I've released my episodes and then people don't have anything to do from like one to three because they have jobs that <laughs> that uh just like make them look busy versus like doing interesting things. Uh, because that's like a big component. Of, like when people listen, I can like see it on my charts. Uh, yeah. is that they go through their they go through their job and it's like you know what is significance what I'm doing, and yeah. uh. And you know, with something physical, something that's serious like this, like you can you can see it, you can touch it, and especially since you were like personally affected by it, I think mm-hmm. that's really big as well. Mm-hmm. But from uh, I think like it's segueing a little bit to the like the business side of it a little bit. Um, how how big of a team do you need to build something like this? I mean, you have a partner for some of the elements, which I think that's a it's a big thing that people don't realize, like uh, like the Neuralinks, the Paradromics, like all these like BCI, like you think like they're building like the whole thing in house, like no, they have like. I was just thinking yeah. if I um, am, am like violating NDA with what I'm saying. No, uh, they uh, <laughs> come sue me. The uh, the uh, like they, they partner out with people. I think they have like public uh, publications on this. I'm not revealing anything. I'm not supposed to know. Uh, so like the idea that you're partnering with something like some people go, oh, you know, build a house, whatever. But like that, like that's a normal thing. Um, okay. So what? How how big of a team and what is the specialization you need to to build to this level that you have, where it seems like you're on the verge of success in the sense of like how I view success here is being able to have something that actually helps people mm-hmm. and so like if you can have like this big release in december that seems like you're right on the verge of being successful so then what what are the team elements that you you needed to have uh yeah. to get to that level it's so interesting because i just had a conversation with someone about um you know like a lot of times startups get measured by like how many full-time employees you have so like in terms of yeah. like employees we have very very few Mm-hmm. Like my partner and I are the only two full times, but in terms of like how many people are actually working on this, so there's probably like ten hardware engineers alone that's working on on this with our partner. You know, there's four to five software developers that's working on the algorithm and the app. There's a marketing team of like four to five. There's consultants on the regulatory side, and you know, if you add up like how many people have been so instrumental not just like spending a couple of hours here and there but actually instrumental in getting us to where it is i think it numbers in like the 50 but i think in the olden days in the old i'd like to call like the old medical device um model you kind of hire all of these people um and then you need to have maybe like 10 to 20 on staff just to get to your first um approval and i feel like the world is changing where not only are there so many like freelance and consultants that you can use to staff and get the skills you need to get to where you are 
I think people are also interested in not just working on one project, but they become a consultant and be involved in like four different projects because there's a cross fertilization that happens. People are more flexible with their time. I think you can make an argument for that. But so it's really hard to answer like how big of a team do you need um, mm. in terms of like full-time employee. But, you know, for us, you know, obviously we need the hardware engineers, we need industrial engineers, we need the software side, we need apps, we need marketing, we need regulatory, we need clinical, um, we need legal. So those are kind of like the big things. And then on top of like the backend stuff, but those are yeah. sort of the big departments that we need to get a product in the market. Yeah, that makes uh, a lot of sense. I think longtime listeners will know that like there's even models of uh horizontal integration i would call it like when you have like contracts and stuff like versus like having everyone inside is like a form of that but there are there are pharmaceuticals like cancer pharmaceuticals that are being made where it's like yeah. two people full-time and they like they yeah. partner out they partner out like the the testing and all these different things but Absolutely. because they're developing the ip the whole time it's still an investable product like it, yeah. the idea that you need like this massive if you have like 25 people on your staff like that's somewhere between like a quarter and like five hundred thousand burn rate per month and so uh yeah. And so, um, like versus like what you have now is probably like more like 25 to $35,000 per month in a burn rate. But so like the, like the, the, the distance you can go while yeah. um, doing something significant, is much more like this like bigger bang for your buck. Like you can do more. And sometimes yeah. people write in like, Oh, how can I do these things? Whatever. And it's like, I actually like, uh, just, you know, find some good partners. Uh, I, I mean, that's, it's really hard to do. Like who can you count on? Right. And the nice thing about hardware is the reputation is a really easy thing to measure. I feel like if you're kind of a, if you're kind of a jerk, uh, I feel like you'll known to be a jerk. Like if you, like your hardware partner, if you, I'm sure you did like some due diligence on like who else has worked with them. You know what is it like? You know, etc. And because yeah. um, if you're gonna put all that time into it, time and money, that's one of the things that like a lot of people they try to abstract away the uh, development. They'd like hire outside developers to handle the whole thing. And the problem there is like uh, there's just so many of them. Like it's better that like in my opinion to have like some part time or like full time in house to, to like. Mm -hmm have like a product dev cycle but i'm sure there's like people who can do that but um like hardware like this it's like like kind of like they're fixed i feel like there's like only so many of them so then like their their reputation is like really easy to like vet which is kind of nice especially when you start going you know if you talk about like how many consumer product developers out there of course like there's million in the world like you go deeper into like okay making hearable products that's a really small universe and you know you've got to be a good partner for you to stay in the industry otherwise everyone just hears about it um but yeah i i love this new business model of like keeping things small and at a low burn until you really get that product market fit and you're ready to scale then you start bringing all the key necessary components in-house right but of course, from the very beginning, we know what is our value. Okay, we, we got value in the patent, we got value in the design, we got value in the customer relationship. So those are things that we really like keep close to the chest. And now we're getting to the point where like, okay, the algorithm part of thing is really key, it's really important. So we need to bring those in-house as well. Um, but yeah, I don't see the need why. Yeah, I love that that example you have about the, the pharmaceutical company with just like two full-time. I've heard it, I've heard it a lot. And I know a few that's like that. And yeah, I just think it's it's so cool. <laughs> yeah, and the funny enough, the area you're in, and I'm not going to get more granular than that for weirdos out there who want a great place to live because I'm not allowed to. But the area you're in, and uh, Switzerland, apparently there's a lot more of them in that area. Like this, like this, uh, like two, like these, this team 
yeah. and then like they outsource a lot of it. But um, the thing that I think very interesting when I talk to entrepreneurs and uh, like people write in like, oh, can I be an entrepreneur? Like, do I need any like, special skills? Like, I I don't have the skills in being an entrepreneur. It's like the weirdly enough, like an entrepreneur just kind of has a way of thinking that like is applied in other ways. And so before we were talking today, I asked her, I asked you um, about like anything like wild that you've done in your life. And you talked about how instead of uh, so you did like this long trip. But instead of like planning it out, you just started doing it. And that's, I think that the big thing is you can have a plan, like an outline, a roadmap, but like when you, like Mike Tyson said, like everyone has a plan and then they get punched in the mouth and it goes away. And so I'd love to hear more about this, uh, this, uh, this point of origin starting at Cape Town and like driving through Africa until like, you know, essentially COVID had to like, like external factors of like a, a pandemic level thing had to come in to stop you from doing what you wanted to do. And you still, I think, found a way through it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it was, you know, started with like really silly. I think we watched some episode of uh, this reality TV where this group of 20 somethings bought, you know, the shittiest car they could find and then drove it from Germany all the way to, um, well, their goal was to go to Cape Town, but I think they get stopped in Congo. And so we were sort of like, really enjoying that show and saying like, oh, it, it'd be kind of cool to do something similar. And we were in Turkey and we were just having dinner and we said, okay, what if we just fly to Cape Town and see what the deal is? Can we buy a car there and figure out how to drive it all the way to Cairo? And, uh, you know, thanks to internet, we found that there's like a whole community that does this and get some tips and tricks on how to do it. And before we know it, basically a month later, we have a car, 25 year old car that we bought secondhand and uh, fitted it with a tent, a rooftop tent on top. And we bought all sorts of secondhand tools to make sure that we can rescue ourselves if we get stranded somewhere in the jungle. And yeah, we started our trip and in Cape Town, we went up to Namibia, Botswana, Zimbabwe, uh, all the way basically to Ethiopia before COVID hits. And I love that you connected it to the startup because I think it is sort of like a startup mentality where we're like, we have limited amount of budget to be able to do this. We don't have the luxury of planning it for six of 12 months. We're sort of like, okay, let's just go there and figure things out along the way. And I think for the most part, it, it works, you know, there's a lot of people that you could ask for advice who has done it before that you could get tips uh, on how to navigate certain situations. And it also helps you develop confidence and sort of like the street common sense of what to do and what not to do. And, you know, after a while, we're like, I think more people should do this. This is so awesome. <laughs> yeah. Is there is there a road connecting from Germany to Cape uh, Cape Town? Is there really is there like a road that you can take to go the whole way? Yes. I, would, I would think there's like a jungle or something you have to like drive through. <coughs> uh, let me think. No, I think you can. You can do it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's possible. People we have. Don't, we don't get that in America. <laughs> you don't get that in America. Yeah, that's true. You have the Darien Gap that you can't cross. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's so. too many. Uh, crazy people in there or something like there's a lot of like criminals that prevents it also it's like the, the topography is quite obnoxious but yeah the daring gap for anyone listening is like south of the panama canal that keeps like south america and north america from from uh, uh being connected and you can blame the cattle industry because the people in america uh, the north america 
didn't want the cattle from South America with a certain disease from coming up here and like polluting the area, and they kept blocking it, and now it's just kind of intransigent. But the uh, but they had reasons. So like, let's not be mean. But um, when you, when you were traveling through Africa, it, was there so like what did it look like? I, I don't want to ask like such a dumb question. Like what did it look like? Because I like this is very like Africa is bigger than I think it could eat like four, Europe like four or five times. But um, yeah. what is, was it like? Rainforest the whole way. Like, what, what were some of the areas that were like really noteworthy to you? Is like really beautiful, really me- like memorable. I mean, I think that's that's the interesting part about Africa. We think of Africa as like this one big place, and we tend to call it as you know the continent instead of the individual country because the individual country is actually very, very varied in terms of its geography, climate, culture, people, food, politics any everything you can think of so it was so special to be able to go overlanding into the each country and as you cross the border suddenly the landscape changed right and and i think that's what's special uh, but some of the memorable ones was like namibia so that's uh north of uh, south africa on the east coast and we were driving through kind of like these sand dunes for hours and hours and hours. And then suddenly there was a sign that says, caution, sand. <laughs> we're like, uh, yeah, duh, we've been driving through sand for the last three days. Thanks for letting us know now. Um, but, you know, I've, I've never been in that kind of landscape before. And um, it's, it's quite impressive. And so when we were driving through um, parts of Namibia and parts of Botswana, you literally just see giraffe just like crossing the road and you're not even like in a park or anything. You were just driving through the highway and like there's the wildlife just right there. And yeah, we, we it, it's so special that way. Um, I think, I mean, I, I grew up in, in Indonesia and and then the US and then now here, you don't get to see wildlife that up close and personal ever. Um, and of course, being able, having the luxury of, you know, camping on top of the car. One night we actually woke up to hear there's a herd of elephant just roaming through. And it's literally, you know, like a couple of hundred meters away from you. And yeah, I, I don't know how to describe it, but it's just like so special being so close and, and so in nature. I, I think we don't get to experience that kind of um, environment a lot these days. Especially elephants. Elephants are um, like they're like geniuses. They're really, really smart animals. So it's like they knew you were there. They're, like, <laughs> they're probably like, oh, look, there's a human. Let's go walk near them. They're probably checking us out. It was like wanting to see like what's going on here. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. It was- how do you stay safe on a trip like that through all the different uh nations and different regions how do you like i was thinking like oh that'd be really fun but then like one of someone tries grabbing my kidneys how do you what i was just like my concern is like someone would try and steal my kidneys but like how do you stay safe when you're on a trip like that that's well that's the thing i feel like the of course there's always danger but i think um the level of danger that we think about in our head is greater than what it actually is like there's very very few times during the trip that we felt like something bad is going to happen to us i think i i mean at least for me i subscribe to the to the belief that 99.99 percent of people in the world are actually not like 
a pathological criminal or a sociopath who's like trying to kill you or like do do something bad to you most people are are nice and even when they're not um it's it's very rare that they're gonna cross over into like that life-threatening level you know Hmm. most of the time we just figure out how to how to navigate that and of course being able to um, travel with the two of us. I think the, the experience would have been like totally different if I'm like traveling by myself, for example. Um, mm-hmm. But I think traveling with another person, um, yeah, partner who I really trust and we work well really together, we can sort of, we, we both, I think, have a pretty good common sense where we can sense when people are not being truthful or it's a little feeling a little sketchy. And in which case we just say like, all right, we're going to go somewhere else. So, yeah yeah mm-hmm. was there uh was it all was it all either in the car or on the top of the car or did you go out and like out into the dunes or into the any of the spots you went like on a hike or whatever yeah all the time um all the time i think <laughs> we would basically what we tend to do when we're in the city then we'll just park the car in in the hostel and we'll take the public transport like the locals do you know like go around without our car because we feel like that's the best way of experiencing the city. And then when we're out in a park or like in the sand dunes, then yeah, we'll just park the car by the campsite and go for a walk or something like that. Um, one time we actually, the car died. So we actually had to walk <laughs> to get help, which is maybe like five kilometers away. And so that's that's quite an experience in itself. And uh, I think, yeah, it really sets us up for, or being in a startup and knows how to fix your own shit when things doesn't yeah. work. <laughs> yeah. So I think the advice here is to uh, like go on little adventures in your life if you can, if you have the space for it. Even if it's just like on the weekend, like maybe you know, and like I guess like the training here would be plan it as least as possible so you can just like interact with the world. Like I want to go from Florida to New York and back, you know, in a day. I think you could do that in like a weekend. That's not that far, but. So you could find like little ways to challenge yourself and that instinctual, like, like train that instinct of yours. Like yeah. You like operationalize what you're saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think even better when things doesn't work out to your plan, because that gives you the confidence of like dealing with, you know, unexpected things. And you just say, okay, that didn't work out the way I planned it. That's fine. I'm still here. I'm still alive. You know, how, how can I, uh, how can I course correct and still get to my destination uh, and not get like so thrown off by the fact that it didn't go according to your plan. Um, I think yeah. that was the biggest thing. Yeah. Like, okay, so what? We get held back in immigration for, because they think our paperwork wasn't right. And, you know, you can get really, really upset about it and um, demand them be be super angry with them, which just won't help your case. Or you can just kind of like say it out and be, what do you call it? Resourceful. Call a bunch of different people <laughs> and figure yeah. out how you, how you can go. Yeah. Yeah. I think the um, I think that a lot of people are kind of like stuck in these bubbles where it's very procedural, almost like they're in like a video game where like everything's on the tracks, and so it doesn't take that much work for you to build this type of muscle to the level where like it's competitive to the people around you. Like if you're you know, like you go to work, you have these things that are presented to you as things to work on. Maybe you have some subject, like some optionalities for how you deal with the problems or like what problems you work on. But like mm-hmm. the more you get to the comfortable with that, like the unknown, 
like when something unknown hits you, not just like something like, oh, I don't know what's happening. I'm going to go left or right. But like border is stopping you and they're like potentially, you know, you said the wrong thing and maybe they're grumpy at you or something like that, like some like danger element to it. Like once you get really comfortable with that, uh, then when there's a time to ask for a race, like you're going to be a little bit more calmer when they try and use all those like, you know, tactics on you and stuff like that. I think it's like little, you'd be, it's, I think it's often very surprising to me how if you just do a little like one to 10% better or different in a different way. Like yeah. that, that little difference can make a huge impact on your life. Yeah. And I think to me, uh, that trip specifically, it takes me to a level where I think in our modern society, we think to like amplify danger. That's like actually more mental, but doesn't actually affect your survival, but you make it so big that it almost feels like I'm going to die. You know, I don't get this promotion. Oh my God, I'm going to die. Or like, uh, my something got rejected. Oh my God, I'm going to die. Like that feeling of dying. But then when you're confronted with, um, that type of like really raw primitive travel where there is danger, you know, one, one, one day we woke up and we basically saw a lion tracks all over our campsites which means that there were lines roaming all around when you kind of get brought down to that level of like primal danger, then it puts everything else into perspective where you're like, Oh, you know what? Like a lot of the troubles that you tend to over amplify in your head, it's actually like, you're still alive. You're still here. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, I didn't get this investment from this investor. Okay. It's fine. We're still here. We can still survive. We can figure out what to do next. It's that kind of um, perspective taking. Yeah. I think like an example, I'm going to ask you advice for aspiring entrepreneurs in a second, but the, I think an example of that is like rejection. Like, can you send out like two to three emails to people you don't know, uh, trying to like learn something or do something in the environment and be completely fine with them saying no to you? Yeah. Uh, I think like, like practicing that, like, I think some people are like, oh, go try and like, you know, get a person's number or whatever. That's a little too sleazy, in my opinion, like for yep. that, because that person kind of like objectifies them on a level, like they're just like a prop on your development. But I think if you email people like in a, a general interest to learn, learning with Lowell, uh, that'd be like a good way to like kind of build that as well. But what advice would you give to entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs? In terms of dealing with rejections or just dealing with uncertainties? No, uh, um, what? Yeah, uh, no, in, in general, that was just my first uh, thing that I thought of as like advice I'd give people who want to uh, like build the skills to get to where you are. Um, but just as a general thing, like what advice would you give people who want to be entrepreneurs? Are there things that you, books recommend, um, uh, experiments you recommend people check out, uh, things that you think they should learn, that type of thing? Just like on a, that's a very big question. So like literally anything that came to your mind is fine with me. <laughs> just go do it. Uh, well, yeah. I think um, like for, I've, I've been wanting to be an entrepreneur probably my whole life. And it wasn't until three years ago that I developed the courage to do it. Right. Um, and I think for those, anyone listening who wants to be an entrepreneur, I think the advice I could give is like, find something that you really care about because the startup journey is not easy. And when you're working about something that you care about, it makes it easier because every day or when you get when you encounter challenges you can always go back to that thing that you care about and say this is why i'm doing it um yeah because that's kind of either either that's your destination or it's the why you want to be entrepreneur in the first place whatever it is find your why because that's the thing that's going to keep you going through the ups and downs of this startup journey yeah and then uh, for you personally, is there anything that you're trying to learn or get better at 
the nice thing is there's usually someone listening in that is an expert in that or something. They'll they'll leave a comment being helpful. Sometimes sometimes they'll just email me, and that's the same thing. But yeah. is there, so is there anything is there anything you're looking to learn right now, or you're trying to improve upon yourself? I'm really trying to learn about sound processing during sleep. Mm. What I'm trying to learn right now. I'm reading a bunch of articles about that. Kind of like what happens um, in sound processing in terms of like when you're awake and when you're asleep, when you're in different sleep stages. How does it changes? What is different effect of sound have on people? Um, and yeah, that's what I want to learn more about. And if you know anything about that, I would love to connect with you. Sweet. And then, what would be the best way for people to stay up to date with? Uh what you're working on is there like a i think there is a newsletter so is there like one place you point people to to stay up to date at <laughs> yeah if you go to our website getsolven.com you can sign up to our newsletter we try to send email once every two weeks um and yeah you can also always email us and see what we're doing we're still pretty intimate with our customers that way that if you send me an email i'll reply to you mm-hmm. All right, well, sweet. Then, uh, Selena, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. Hope everyone got something from this. If you did, please comment below because we like to read these things. Or at least I do. I don't know. I, re- I reply to everything. Unless you're a jerk, then I shadow ban you. But, Selena, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Lowell. It's been a great pleasure. <laughs>